The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. There is another race of people inhabiting our world. They are not identical to us. Although we are closely enough related to interbreed, they go largely unseen and unknown. Although occasionally, there are reports from a select few eyewitnesses of encounters with them or observations of their advanced craft and technologies or half-remembered interactions at night in homes across the world by the general public that are usually scrambled or unclear in the mind's eye. They have been here coexisting with us for millennia, influencing our spirituality, folklore, and religious, philosophical, and even political systems. They wield a sophisticated set of technological, quote-unquote, toys that bedazzle and mesmerize us, confuse our senses and our recollective powers, allow them to walk through walls, become invisible at will, and float soundlessly through the air. Tonight, we'll discuss the long-term presence of a race of humanoid beings, different and yet disturbingly similar to us, that walk unchecked through our houses and gardens at night, lurk in our woodlands and remote places, and who move beneath our oceans and govern our dreams. We'll revisit historical accounts of non-humanoid beings, from the fairy faith of Celtic lands to the earliest accounts of aliens and ETs in the modern era all the way to the contemporary cases of Charles Hall's millennial hospitality and Christopher Bledsoe's Faith Bill incident. Meditating on the similarities and apparent identical natures of these non-human entities throughout history and time, the children of Orion are here, and with them come the answers to our past, to our present, and to our future selves. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum, and more. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy, MMS, EMP shield, solar, and EMP protection, rebounders, CBD pure hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. Ryan Musgrave Evans lives in Victoria, Australia. He has a Bachelor of Arts with First Class Honors, Philosophy, Latrobe University in Bundura, Melbourne. He is an author. His latest publication is titled Children of Orion, Finding the Crypto-Terrestrials. He is fluent speaker of Irish and Scottish Gaelic and has an insatiable preoccupation with comparative linguistics, philosophy, folklore, religious studies, and all research into the paranormal. And directly from Victoria, Australia, I'd like to welcome Ryan Musgrave-Evans. Hello, Ryan, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Mel. Thanks for having me. Thank you, and thank you for waking up so early. It's always enjoyable for me to talk to people from so many different time zones, and you being in Australia, it's early there, so I appreciate it. But before we begin, Ryan, I'd like to know, I always like to build the characters so that our listeners know 
who we're talking to. And I know you have a very, very unique story. I like to focus on the your story first, and then we'll definitely jump into the great cases you include in your book. Yeah, okay, for sure. So, um, well, my story, uh, well, I, I'm 42 years old. Um, uh, I've been a few different things over my life, different occupations. I've been a, a, a nurseryman, like a working on um, wholesale tree farms, so basically a farmer. Um, I'd also been a, a, an elementary school teacher, uh, a relief or substitute teacher for, for years as well. Um, my paranormal experiences uh, started happening quite young. Um, now, uh, there was one major event that happened um, when I would have been one month off turning five. So it's quite early. Um, it was the summer of 1983. Um where uh, my family and I were going down to the local golf course, which was an annual tradition where there were pine tree, there was a little pine tree wood, um, a little woodland uh, running adjacent to, to the golf course. And we'd go in there and we'd um, just cut a limb off a pine tree every year and take it home, stick it in a bucket with a bit of soil and pretend it was a, a whole tree and use that as a Christmas tree. Um but one particular year, there was something behind one of the pine trees, and it was peeking out at me, and it had huge black eyes, um, like a tri- triangular-shaped face, so narrowing down to a pointed chin. Um, what I thought were sort of, um, markings along the top of its head or ridges, uh, I, I always thought of it as looking like a mask, like it wasn't a real face. Very long fingers. And looked like it was even part of the tree, like the texture of its body seemed to be of the same material as the tree itself. So, so I was saying to my mother, what is that? And she couldn't actually see it. Um, and my siblings who'd been down in the woodland gathering this tree, they walked back past, uh, the very tree that the, the being was behind and couldn't see it either. So this was very, very confusing to me. Um, so as time went on, I've seen the same suit which is actually a suit um i've seen it many times since um and as an adult especially uh, a fair few times um a particular suit that they wear for cloaking and things like this which i talk a fair bit about in my book but um so i had been right that when i was a little kid that it was a mask not actually the the face of the entity itself but um you know and i had sporadic um events happen over my childhood and teenage teenagerhood um uh, that were paranormal um like poltergeist activity um waking up in the middle of the night not being able to um wake the rest of my family my siblings and my parents like they were comatose just couldn't um and then being drawn outside where i'd see tall fair beings leaping into the luminous beings leaping up and floating back down like they were dancing dark these dark beings again um cloaking suit kinds of a cloaking suit really it is this suit that had dark eyes the first time i saw it but red eyes at night so i ended up I started to see these beings these suits and then at night they have the red eyes um smaller ones galloping around on all fours leaping up into my face and things like this i have these memories in my childhood of that and then in teenage years still having um, experiences like this now i thought that they were fairies for elves. This was my interpretation. Um, and I decided that elves must be real. Um, and so I 
made a point of of researching um the pagan like celtic fairy faith of old um and read a few different books um about that um and was really driven and motivated because i was thinking well i've had the wonderful opportunity of seeing them in the flesh and so you know i already know that they're real so i'll research this now as in more recent years um uh i moved back down my, my partner and i uh, moved back down to a town fairly close to the town I grew up in. So I'd lived away for many, many years and then returned. Once I returned, um, the these kinds of interactions uh, returned as well, uh, just uh, became quite intense, um, but took on a slightly different slant where then I was starting to think, hold on a sec, some of these interactions are starting to take on more of a typical kind of ET UFO abduction narrative where um, I'm taken onto craft, lying on a bed, medical procedures. So more of this sort of typical themes running through, you know, close encounter events. Um, and so that's that really sparked my interest in researching UFOs and ETs. Um, and I started to make these connections between older beliefs um, from earlier centuries past in elves and fairies and non-human entities and the recent relatively recent phenomenon of ufo et abduction law and narrative and things like that and so took became very interested um fairly recently in jacques valet because jacques valet of course wrote passport to magonia his seminal work is just mind-blowing to me to see the comparisons that he was making between celtic fairy law in particular um he really he talks about um you know societal humanoids living at the fringes of our world in general you know it's just it's a fairly ubiquitous thing but um in particular Jacques Vallée focused on the Celtic stuff um and then after him Mac Tonys um took some of his ideas the late Mac Tonys unfortunately passed away quite young under mysterious um, and, circumstances I uh, yes you could say you could say that um yes uh um, and and post, uh, posthumously, his book was published in 2010, so he passed right. away in 2009. But his book, The Crypto-Terrestrials, A Meditation on Indigenous Humanoids and the Aliens Among Us, that was influential to me as well because that returned um, my thinking towards uh, the concrete, moving away from the etheric or esoteric and bringing it back down to nuts and bolts, flesh and blood, because that's where... McTonies, even though he agreed in a lot of ways with what Jacques Vallée had written, that these, this was, you know, there's evidence that this is a continuum of experience. These are fairies and elves and, uh, you know, um, non-human pilots of the UFOs and, and, and an abduction law are perhaps the, the one race or perhaps several races represented over time and seen through different lenses by us now. Um, as opposed to then interpreted in different ways now as opposed to then, but n nonetheless a, a, a continuing um, a narrative, a, a representative of one race or two or three perhaps. Um, but Jacques Vallée had suggested that maybe these beings were intangible in some sense. Um, uh, I'm paraphrasing him here, but uh, Jacques Vallée certainly suggested that the evidence was points towards them being beyond us in some sense and perhaps not physical in the sense that we understand and perhaps being creatures of a multiverse or something like this and 
and operating on laws of, of physics that don't apply to us all the time. Whereas um, Mac Tony said, hold on a sec, there's no need necessarily to make them anything other than flesh and blood, nuts and bolts, perhaps a sister race to us present on Earth with robust enough technologies to be um, pulling the wool over our eyes uh, with subterfuge, with, with cloaking, with mental manipulation and things like this, but nonetheless um, rooted in material, the material world rather than the spiritual. And I was thinking, yeah, I think I'm going to go along those lines in my own investigations because um, uh, I, I, I was thinking, you know, this is perhaps is an unfortunate um, analogy to make in regards to these beings, because I'm not suggesting the beings themselves are serial criminals necessarily, but the kinds of profiling that, that say, an FBI profiler would do or a, or a detective when they're seeking out a serial murderer or a serial criminal where you're building profiles, those people are presuming that the people that they're hunting or seeking are real, flesh and blood, tangible people um, that are things in themselves that do not shift and change depending on our understanding of them. And so I decided I really can't afford to be too um, uh, mystical in my in my um, uh, involvement with this. I really need to bring it back to nuts and bolts. And uh, so I did that. Um, and my understanding of them, although the line blurs when technologies are so advanced that Beings can become intangible and make objects intangible so they can pass through solid objects, perhaps open portals with advanced technology and leap through space. Of course, the distinction between spiritual and material starts to sort of blur or break down when you're talking about these levels of advancement. But what I what I felt that it was necessary for me to launch a kind of investigation into the beings that I knew, um, that, that I already knew and had been getting used to, um, I needed to bring it to the the material and the concrete. And of course, if you have a, an event like that in your life, it's not as if you're going to the library and going to the, to the librarian and asking for a point of reference. You have to do your own research and then you start finding out and it takes decades. It's not, it's not an easy task to do, but the red eyes of the beings you witnessed, it reminds me of Chris Bledsoe's story, same red eyes too. And also elves, fairies, and even angels could also have been the way our ancestors used to describe these strange visitations and beings. But I remember the first time I really pondered about the probability that what we deem extraterrestrials or aliens are not from other planets. And I'm saying, I'm saying not all of them, but think about it. More than 80% of our ocean is unmapped, unobserved and unexplored, a lot of it remains to be learned from exploring the mysteries of, of the deep. And I'm not only referring again to our oceans, but what about underground? The deepest hole ever dug into Earth in Russia, the Kola Peninsula, it's seven kilometers, about 23,000 feet. So a lot of what is underground is also unmapped and unexplored. So then came Mactonis, as you mentioned, the author of the book, again, The Crypto Terrestrials. And he also refers to them as hidden earthlings. And again, I think he died under mysterious circumstances. He had two books, not only Crypto Terrestrials, he had another one. I'm, I'm lucky to have both. And that's when it dawned on me, Ryan, that maybe we need to be looking right here in our oceans and underground instead of above. So instead of calling them ETs, maybe we should call them 
CTs or cryptoterrestrials. Yes, that's that's right. I, I totally agree with you, Mel. Um, uh, Mac Tony's was very much onto it. Um, now, yeah, uh, you're exactly right. Cryptoterrestrials. I mean, it, it troubled Mac Tony's that um, abduction law um, seems to involve this kind of theme of uh, being interested in our DNA, taking our DNA. Um, uh, sometimes even um, copulating with us in the old-fashioned sense, you know, like the case of Peter Curry in Sydney in 1992 and Antonio Villas-Boas in Brazil in 1957, where fair blue-eyed beings um, had sexual interactions with, with people as well. So um, now Mactoni's was of the opinion that that is strongly indicative of them having some kind of close genetic affiliation with us, perhaps a sister race. Um, you could you could say, um, but uh, and then as you rightly said, crypto terrestrial. You know, he he floated that the crypto terrestrial hypothesis that basically says, as you said yourself just then, that the beings may be indigenous humanoids rather than extrasolar aliens. Um, to him, it was a hypothesis. He didn't necessarily believe it literally, but uh, he was just floating it there as an alternative to what he considered to be the dogmatic extraterrestrial hypothesis or eth that usually people presume a priori to be right um you know we're seeing all these advanced things we don't have them marvelous machines flying through the air beings levitating walking through walls we don't have that so therefore it must be from somewhere else so that's the sort of line of thinking that most people i think in the world of ufology have and have had um but uh now through time, you know, this is an important um, uh, uh, thing to notice. And Jacques Vallée pointed to this before uh, Mactoni's, of course. But, um, you know, if we have something like a tall, fair race that whistles and chirps, that lives in subterranean dwellings or habitations, that floats about on the horizon in luminous suits or sometimes looking like Will-o'-the-Wisp, um, that can um, mesmerize and manipulate human minds, um, is intensely curious, can go ruffle, ruffles through people's belongings um, uh, with the kind of like a poltergeist kind of uh, element to it as well. Um, now, that's a good description I just gave then of not only Nahuishlan, the gentry or Gaelic fairies, but also the tall whites of Charles Hall. Those two descriptions I gave could be either. And so now this particular race is the, the race that I have been interacting with all my life as well. Charles Hall called them tall whites. Um, now, before his books were published in the early 2000s, the term Nordic was more usually applied to these beings. Um, nowadays, sometimes people consider Nordics and tall whites to be two different things. But I think originally Nordics was a term for these um, and then post-millennial hospitality books of Charles Hall, um, Tall Whites has come into the vocabulary as well. But um, I, I really don't necessarily approve of either of those terms. Um, a lot of these beings uh, are quite short. Uh, they take a long time to grow. Uh, like the partner of Antonio Villas-Boas in 1957 in Brazil, the, the female that he had intercourse with on board a ship, um, she was only between four and a half and five foot, five feet tall, I believe. 
Um, and then you've got Peter Curry's partner in 1992, and he he's six foot tall, and he said she was a good. Um, uh, I think he said she was a head taller than him. So that's on the way to being seven foot, you'd imagine. Um, so you have this disparity between heights of what would seem to be um, physically mature females, uh, both of them huge blue eyes, fine white hair, um, white skin. Um, in, the, in the case of Antonio Villas-Boas, uh, barking and growling and yelping, which is another element that Charles Hall mentioned that the tall whites do. Um, but the disparity in heights, Charles Hall mentioned this himself, um, that uh, it can take them 100 years before they even reach six foot. And if they're lucky, they can get to seven to 800 years old and be as tall as nine or 10 foot by the end. So you can have individuals that are adults. Um, so she, that individual that uh, Antonio Villas-Boas met may have been 50 years old, like five zero, not one five, 50, um, and be a sexually mature woman. But then you have Peter Curry's partner on the way to being seven foot tall, a much older individual um, that would be probably um, on the way to being 600 years old. This, this raises interesting questions as well about the the um, fertile, productive lifespan of this race, where you can have uh, mature females um, over spans of hundreds of years capable of reproducing. Um, now, um, yes. Anyway, uh, Charles Hall's um, this is the same the same race. Now they've they've actually told me that they're called the Mudgena. The beings themselves have told me this, which I spell M-A-J-E-E-N-A. I just coined the spelling to try and um, best represent what I was hearing them say. Um, and uh, they they are here. They're in our mountains and under the earth. They're under our seas. They move about and chase the warmth. So they leave habitations dormant for periods of the year. They're not always present. Their they're, they're habitations prevalent in um, uh, wilderness areas, state parks, national parks, uh, but also under the ocean. Um, and uh, and they are indigenous to this planet, although they have a complicated history, which is one that involves an Earth-like planet orbiting Al-Nalam or Epsilon Orionis, the middle star of Orion's belt. They've spent a long period of time there and have returned to reinvigorate their failing genomes. Their genomes are not healthy because they've been deliberately doing genetic engineering, tampering with their own genetic uh, structure, um, developed um, maladies and pathologies as a result of genetic engineering and attempting to lengthen their own lifespans, among other things. Um, you know, and the, the genome's a systemic, holistic thing that if you think you're going to produce certain specific um, um, effects through genetic manipulation, through, say, lengthening a lifespan, other unforeseen symptoms or side effects can and do occur. And in their case, it has meant that they have windows of growth um, where they keep growing and keep growing. This is a side effect of them lengthening their own lifespans that they didn't foresee. Another is that their muscle density really breaks down and they become quite fragile. Um, they're also susceptible to um, certain uh, diseases and uh, and um, uh, and 
allergies. They have a lot of allergies. Um, and they're trying to rectify that by coming back to a form of human that was the equivalent to the way they were in their ancient past. And so we are to them in part um, free-range ancient humans that they can take sample genetic material from or even interbreed with us straight from the source when we were still pure in the sense that we hadn't begun messing with ourselves too much. Um, so their, 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 their history is, is very complicated. You could call them future humans, but it depends on what you mean by time travel. Uh, interdimensional humans from a different timeline might be a better, but they've been back here for thousands of years. So, um, they said to me once, um, uh, they told me that they were the saucepan people quite early on when I was a child. They said, we are saucepan people. And I was a bit confused by that. But then later on, they said to me, we are from the saucepan. Now, the saucepan is Australian slang for, uh, constellation of orion or part of orion anyway and it's upside down to us and there's a, a section of the orion constellation kind of looks like a pot or a pan with a handle yeah and orion's belt makes up the bottom of the the bottom line of this pot or saucepan um so that originally said that um when i said to them you are us you are too close to us you're too similar to us you must be from our ancient past or be some other some other form of um, hominin but not from this species our species perhaps or maybe you're a subspecies or something like that they said oh it's it's more complicated than that and that's what they'd said quite early on to me um and then at a later stage they'd said to me we are you we are your future um now um i might just quickly uh raise the issue of dan burrish or or Dan Crane, mm-hmm. um, one of the least believed figures in ufology, I'd imagine. Um, people have mixed emotions at best about Dan Crane, and most people do not believe the man and uh, and uh, and vehemently express their opinions about Dan Burrish if you ever mention him. Um, so I don't uh, necessarily recommend uh, <laughs> publicly endorsing anything the man says, which I do. Um, By the way, I don't mean to interject, um, but for, for those who may not be familiar with the story of Dan Burish, uh, this goes all the way back to 2006 or seven, I believe, uh, during the Project Camelot interviews, correct? That's true, yes, yes. He did interviews with Project Camelot. He'd done earlier interviews, I think, with um, Bill Hamilton, William Hamilton, um, and uh, maybe C. Ron Garner. I think he'd done some interviews with him as well. But um, he claimed to have worked at S4, the same installation that, uh, Bob Lazar claimed to have worked at. Dan Burrish didn't claim to be there when Bob Lazar was. And he, he claimed to have been a, a microbiologist taking samples and working on what he called a J rod, um, a P52 J rod, uh, present plus 52,000 years hence. So a future human, really. Um, a small dark brown being with scaly skin, looks a bit like a monkey, big dark eyes, um, three ridges across the top of its head, claws on its fingers, four fingers with no thumb. Uh, similar looking to pop, the pop culture idea of a grey, but dark brown in colour, chocolate brown instead of grey. So he made these claims that he'd done that. He also made a claim that he'd sat on the board of Majestic. He made a lot of big claims and a lot of people just uh, um, outright 
spoke out against him and just presumed on the face of all the information and how outlandish it all seemed that that is, none of it's true. And, and investigations were made into his paper trail as well, and it was found, as is the case with Bob Lazar, as is the case with um, Charles Hall as well to a certain extent. Um, paper trail didn't really add up. Um, investigations, journalistic investigations into, um, you know, whether he really attended the institutions he claimed to have attended, where he re- whether he really re- received um, the qualifications he was claiming to have received, and it was all drawing a blank, similar to, to what, what happened with um, Bob Lazar when Stanton Friedman was, was investigating Bob Lazar. But um, uh, now, in my opinion, counterintelligence and misinformation are far-reaching. Um, not to mention that I'm, they also had a different name. I don't mean to interrupt you. Uh, Arthur Neumann, or Newman, uh, also known as Henry Deacon, who came out at the same time, remember? I, I do remember that individual, yes. Yes, that's right. He's a soft, quiet-spoken man with glasses. Yes, uh, exactly. Um, um, yeah. I, I, he, he had similar uh, – uh, so, some of his story or testimony um, complimented Dan Burish's um, – yeah, he's an interesting individual as well. I think he's sort of gone off the radar these days. <clears throat> Excuse me. But uh, but what I've done instead, like what happened with Dan Burrish is I saw him in an interview one day, and I think it was one of those Project Camelot interviews. Um, and he was saying um, they're future humans. And I was, and then my interest was piqued because I was like, oh, this is interesting because this is what the beings had mentioned to me. Um, now, he was talking about, little brown monkey-like beings. And I was thinking, oh, hold on a sec. You know, what else have you got in your repertoire? And then he said, Nordics or tall whites, but they are called P-52 Orions, future humans from Orion's belt, from Al-Nalam. They were originally indigenous to this planet, or originally us, um, but um, uh, had traveled into Stella. Um, in their own histories and had returned because of their corrupt failing genomes. And um, he said tall, huge blue eyes, kind of look like Bratz dolls, he said. Their eyes are just much larger. Their orbits are much larger than ours relative to the skull size. Um, now, And I was thinking, now, this is very interesting because this is matching uh, the beings that I know so well myself. Um, and I'd already matched them up as well to the beings that Charles Hall spoke about. Charles Hall himself presumed the beings to be true, genuine aliens with a separate history to the Earth. Um, uh, he, it didn't occur to Charles Hall they might be indigenous. And you could even say that some of the things that the tall white said to him were suggestive of them being aliens. Um, but they can't be trusted to 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 <laughs> to actually uh, give you the, the genuine and honest truth in regards to a lot of these things if they're feeling that they have to be covert and have to maintain their cover. Um, now, the tall whites, mammals, they have nipples, they have hair on their bodies, they have the same amount of ribs that we do, they have recognisable facial expressions to us, they laugh, they have senses of humour. Um, uh, the idea that they are somehow separately evolved and have no evolutionary history with us or with the Earth is just outlandish. Um, they are us, or almost us. And so they must be indigenous to the earth. Um, and also, so that's what got me onto Dan Burrish anyway. But basically, originally it was that a certain race of beings, he said there were four. There's been four races extant, all of them future human lineage 
beings. And that these four races are what people call ETs or aliens, but they're not actually true aliens in the sense that they are originally from here. They're indigenous. They're crypto terrestrials, you could call them again now, because they have returned and they've been here for millennia, interacting with us, influencing our folklore, our superstitions, our religious systems, um, you know, cultural, um, cultural artifacts, cultures, um, uh, people have added to what was direct empirical evidence, I believe, where people are actually having experiences with these things. Then humans are storytelling machines, of course, so anything you don't understand about them, it doesn't take long for people to make it up and, and add, you know, histories and backstories to these beings and, or, um, um, uh, modify certain elements of it to conform to their, uh, prior belief system. Etc. and so on. So a lot of a lot of characters in folklore are, in my opinion, or if not all of them, but certainly most of them, are based on original empirical direct interactions with these four races, um, of which I believe there are only two left. Um, but um, and then you get disagreement of course, between different kinds of folklore, different stories from different parts of the earth, and then also, you know, different taxonomies developing where people are saying, oh, these ones had scales. I saw these beings that had scales. So people say, and this happens in ufology as well. If you see a being that has scales, some people are going to say it had scales. And they go, oh, okay, here we go. We've got one sort here. It's a reptile-like being. So that's one race. And then they say, and then someone else might see the same being and say they kind of look like a monkey. And so you get people going, oh, here we go. We've got another race. It's a monkey race. And then you get another another person seeing the same kind of being and saying they look insect-like. And then, of course, that's a third race to 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 log into the the list. Um, so a lot of a lot of uh, the different races, in my opinion, mantis beings, in my opinion, are elderly, tall, white medics when they wear black lenses over their eyes. Maybe they can be eight, nine, even ten foot tall, emaciated, long, four very long fingers with a small vestigial thumb further up their hand, uh, very long faces because as they get older, their faces get longer as well and their chins get very long and heavy and pointed. Um, like Peter Curry said, the woman that was seven foot tall that he interacted with um, had a chin like a witch is the way he described it. But um, that's a, as they get older, they get that more of a look. Um, with a mask over their faces, uh, a head cap over their head, covering their hair, um, hunched shoulders as they get older, they, they, uh, suffer curvature of the spine, their shoulders become all hunched forward. Basically, what I have seen of their elderly medics look like giant mantises, but they're not mantises, they're future humans. Uh, in my opinion as well, a lot of the reptilian myth is, um, uh, can be attributed to um, being caused by uh, these suits, these dark cloaking suits they wear that I call Boas suits, named after Antonio Villas Boas, B-O-A-S. Um, I had to call them something, so I just I thought I'll call them that because he um, came across individuals that were wearing these dark suits as well. Uh, that can cloak glowing red eyes at night, can pass through solid objects, um, can levitate, um, given rise as well to the Mothman myth, um, these suits are uh, military-grade super soldier suits, really, even though their children are trained to use them as well. Telepath tech in their helmets. The beings have a no more naturally telepathic 
than than we are, but they rely on technologies that they wear in their helmets to speak directly into our minds, to read our thoughts, to exert mental manipulation and influence upon us, to instill visceral fear into our minds, to repel us if they think that that needs to be done, or to also, conversely, um, awaken feelings of love and gratitude in our minds if they if they think that that, that would disarm us. Um, so um, these beings responsible for most uh, paranormal characters uh, throughout mythology and even now in the UFO era. I always think of Oakham's razor when it comes to, for example, the tall whites might have been here for thousands of years. But the, if there are many cases where there's sexual intercourse and, and conception, and I've discussed many of those cases, and the offspring can procreate, that gives more credence that they're from here, at least for a long time. Because I'm thinking of a, a tiger and a lion. They can procreate and, and say what most people know, the horse and the donkey. What do we get? A mule. And mules cannot procreate. These are animals that are certainly from here, but their DNA is not equipped to confer fertility in the offspring. So the chances of these beings being from here, I think is, is more probable than their being from somewhere else. At least they have been here for a very long time. Yes. Yeah. Well, in my opinion, it's, I would say it's impossible um, really for them to have, um, you know, for parallel or convergent evolution completely separate from us right. to end up with something that can interbreed with us. I mean, that, I, I mean, I don't know as time goes on and in my opinion, they're going to reveal themselves more and more bit by bit, but I'm not sure whether people are going to say they are represent a separate species to us. So, you know, I've, I've sort of tentatively called them Homo Orionis, um, O R I O N I S Orionis. Um, Or are they not a separate species, but rather a subspecies, in which case you could call them Homo sapiens orionis to distinguish them from us as Homo sapiens sapiens. Um, yeah, very, very close, very, very close. And, and so it, they must be from here, basically, according to my line of thinking. I mean, I know that's sort of like a, a scientific materialist re reductionist kind of thing to say where, you know, um, it's statistically impossible for, for beings to have convergent evolution to this point um some people will you know evoke ideas of like um maybe we're from somewhere else too maybe life was seeded here so that uh you know in which case they're they may be related to us but that's because we're all from somewhere else well, you look at the fossil record and you can see that that's not the case um we've been slowly evolving for a very long time there's not really any missing links in the fossil record from what i can tell other than maybe periods of Um, rapid evolution, um, uh, and, but th that kind of thing is natural and possible in certain circumstances, you know. Um, no, we're, we're all from here. They are too. Um, and they've returned, you know, this is, this is what they've actually told me as well. But, um, what I've done with my book, um, is I deliberately leave my own experiences to near the end because basically, I decided I wanted to use pattern recognition and profiling, so I made what I call the CT profile or crypto-terrestrial profile, which I slowly build over the book. Um, 
where I start off with the Nahuishlin, like I was talking about before, the gentry, the Gaelic elves, Nashikin, um, and I match them up with um, Charles Hall's Tall Whites, like I did earlier. Um, and I left out some of the parallels as well. Off the top of my head, I just gave to you before um, a few of them, but there's there's more um, parallels that corresponding elements on both lists for those two different races, or not two different races in my opinion, but for those two uh, early and uh, and um, and modern um, descriptions of these this one race. Um, but um, yeah, so the I move from there and and add further characteristics to the list so i use the list and seek cases where there are beings that conform to the list or at least conform in part i investigate those cases these cases help serve to inform the list to add extra attributes and characteristics to the compendium and as the book goes on and on a much more clear picture develops of the beings, their appearance, their languages, their habitation, um, their the kinds of technologies, um, their past histories, reasons for being here. Um, and um, once I have the reader up to a point where I'd like to think that maybe there, it's been proven beyond reasonable doubt that these beings exist, because a lot of these coincidences are just too great through the different cases, I then talk to the reader about my own experiences. Um, now, because my experiences are so uh, mind-blowing, really, that that uh, I don't blame people for just not believing me. You know, like there's this, I've had things happen to me that are just so freaky that I can appreciate the fact that most critically-minded people would just be like, there's no way that's true, you know. So... In a sense, I'm sort of seducing the reader into being more open-minded as to the being's existence before I tell them about my own experiences. I do it in that in that way. And by the way, said, you're a safe ground on this platform. Oh, that, <laughs> oh that's good to hear. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, I'm sort of rambling now, Mel. Sorry. No, that's okay. Um, that's okay. You know, it's important for people to to understand. Do I believe you? Do I believe anybody who's been here with me? And the answer is, I don't know what you went through. I either know or I don't. But I cannot discount your experiences. They're interesting. And every time I talk to somebody like you, I connect more dots. Now, for what we're discussing here about the 12 whites, the fact that it could be that they have been here for a long time and they have conquered time-traveling technology. I mean, that's a, but there are so many possibilities. And if we through whether it's science or dogma or religion, if we use those glasses to just discount the possibilities, we will never be able to progress in life. You know, what do they say? That if two scientists get together and they say somebody comes with a new technology and these scientists, because they have no point of reference, they say that's impossible. You see what I mean? And I'm, I'm also digressing. Let me go back here for a moment. When Christopher Columbus was approaching the first piece of land in, in the Caribbean, namely the, the Bahamas. The indigenous population was not able to see their ships because they had never seen them before. Only the elder was able to, for some reason, see them. Well, they call them gods. But imagine for a moment that instead of a ship, that they use a, a vessel like that, a, a, a water structure to, to come in, instead of that, they use a helicopter or a more modern 
aircraft. The natives may have thought the craft were from space and not from Europe. What if there are other portions of our planet or plane or realm that are unexplored or are difficult to reach underground, undersea, or beyond, say, Antarctica? And we can't get there, but they can get here. How would that be different than what the indigenous population in the Caribbean witnessed in 1492? Yeah, well, that's that's right. That um, It wouldn't really be be uh, be different. I mean, and then, um, you know, Isaac Asimov's oft-quoted quote about, um, how does that go again? Um, any suitably advanced technology... And this thing goes from magic. ...from magic. Um, and I think that that is the case. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then, I mean, in the end, the technologies get so advanced. I mean, the meanings of words start to break down in some ways. I mean, what is magic anyway? Um, magic may be and always has been um, sophisticated technologies wielded by advanced beings seen by us, you know. Um by the yeah, way, you, you sure. meant that's you meant Arthur C. Clarke, not not Isaac Asimov, right? Oh, sorry, did I say I'm, I'm, that's okay? Sorry, sorry, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke. Sorry, I'm mixing up my um my sci-fi or famous sci-fi. <laughs> that's fine. I do I'm, it all I'm the time. I'm not enough of a sci-fi nerd. <laughs> I do it all the time. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh no, I was just agreeing with you. Yeah, for sure. But um, that's a good a good parallel. Um, the indigenous people around the earth encountering Europeans for the first time. That must have seemed quite magical or unusual to them. I think it interpreted by some groups as being encountering the dead as well, you know, not just gods, but um, but in- encountering deceased spirits or the ancestors, their own ancestors returned and things like this. Um, perhaps, perhaps that interpretation is partly explainable by the, the fairness of the Europeans as well. Um, but um, giving them a, a certain appearance as ghosts or something. But yeah. Well, let's bring them back here to the 21st century. If you have a bunch of people, say, in Manhattan Island, downtown Manhattan, and they see these ships flying by and maybe even landing, the first thing that comes to mind to, to most people is, oh, they came from another planet. Why is it that they cannot, in their mind, think, if we haven't, like I said before, 80% of our our oceans are unexplored, unobserved, and unmapped. Why couldn't we think that they might be? I mean, and I'm thinking of the Admiral Byrd story. You know the Admiral Byrd story, right? Yes, yeah, I am familiar with it. So, detail. in the 40s, if, if supposedly they went to Antarctica and they were, they encountered a force that they could not even match. This is in the 1940s. What if the same force decides to fly over, say, Washington, D.C. in 1952 or come right now to Manhattan or, or Los Angeles, why can't we see that maybe they come from a different part of Earth that is completely secluded and there are United Nations treaties where they have said, hey, if any country comes here, we're going to kick their butts out. So you better just make sure that none of your citizens pass this demarcation line. I think that's more plausible than a lot of these beings being from a another planet. And, and, and not only that, but let's say that you and I go to another planet now. Uh, would we be telling them where we come from? I mean, you see that the situation in the world, if these beings come here and see the way we treat our people, our animals, do you think they want to be giving you your their zip code? They might be saying, oh, yeah, we come from Orion, or we come from Alpha Centauri or, or somewhere else. 
We're not going to tell you that we maybe are a few hundred miles under Malibu Beach or somewhere in the Atlantic or Pacific or underground inside of a mountain somewhere. You see where I'm coming from? Oh, yes, for sure. For sure. Um, and I think it's Terence McKenna that said something like, now, hold on, I'll just I'll just make sure it is Terence McKenna so I haven't <laughs> mixed up a... Yeah, I read it from uh, your book. You're right. It's <laughs> Terence McKenna who says something like that. Yeah, he said, um, yeah, that uh, maybe um, he feels that there is... Um, uh, a race posing as an extraterrestrial invasion so as not to alarm us. Uh, yeah, that that is a very, very interesting idea. I, I I think that Charles Hall was being subjected to kind of a little bit of misinformation in, in respect to that, uh, where they weren't actually telling him where they were from. He presumed that they were aliens, as I said before, Um and um, Charles Hall, just quickly say, um, I don't think I actually explained who he was earlier, but, but most of your listeners will probably be aware of him, but um, claimed to have worked as a weather observer for the United States Air Force at Nellis Air Force Base, Indian Springs, um, in the 60s. He was posted there for two years, and he claims to have had interactions with what he called tall whites, these tall, fair, subterranean-dwelling beings um, that were residing in the, um, the mountains there that fall within the Air Force Base, so restricted areas, restricted to us, um, to U.S. citizens. And, um, but uh, I think um, the, the lines, the demarcations are not necessarily as clear as they could be. Um, there are a lot of dwellings or habitations or facilities or whatever you want to call them in national parks where people can and do go. Um, now, some of this, some missing 411 David Politis style. I was going to ask you, um, if there was a connection, on, do you think, about 411 and the David Pilates, uh, Pilates, uh research? I think so in, in, for, for certain categories, you know, because David Politis talks about a few different kinds of missing people, you know, and he, and he, he um, has a category in particular about hunters that go missing, and one of his documentaries was specifically about that. And then there's, um, you know, children going missing and, and different kinds of people, athletes, um, uh, doctors and um, academics and things like this. Um, when it comes to hunters, um, it's my opinion that um, at least some miss, missing hunters uh, could be them, involve them. Um, well, I think, well, in, some are. I know they have talk to me a little bit about this some of them definitely are in my opinion perhaps even many of them um if they perceive aggressive and malicious intent and a deadly weapon being wielded by someone near their children uh they will just kill people take people out if there's if, if someone's shooting say um after deer or or some kind of animal in the national parks state parks just so happens it's a time of year where a habitation is actually being used by the tall whites. Um, there's children playing with a few guards maybe there, but um, the homo sapiens aren't aware of their presence. Hear something crashing through the bush, through the trees. The, the person takes a shot or goes to take a shot. These kinds of situations are potentially lethal for the person, for the homo sapiens. You know? um, and t Charles Hall talks about this as well, um, how um, hunters... In one particular stage, he talks about, I think it's when Michael Sala did an interview with him, actually, um, 
uh, and Charles Hall, I don't think it's actually in any of his books, but in an interview he did with um, Michael Sala, um, he said that there were hunters that had taken a shot at a tall white child thinking it was um, um, some kind of animal, like I think a, a bighorn sheep or something like that, and um, and that the um, there was deadly force then used on the on the people. I think the um, the United States Air Force guards got involved as well because they are usually trying to keep on the good side of the tall whites. Um, and so the tall whites suggested, you know, that one of these guys be killed and maybe the other one locked up. So they did that. But the tall whites are very capable of killing people themselves as well. Um, now, there's all different kinds of individuals that belong to this race, just as it is for us. There's there's a spectrum of cruel all the way from cruel to highly compassionate individuals. They have a priestly class as well, um, a kind of spirituality of their own based on consciousness resembling forms of Asian mysticism. Um, but um, they also have a, a highly stratified, organized, efficient military. Um, and some of the members of the military are particularly disagreeable, especially up in the higher ranks, um, and can be uh, callous, uh, disregard human life. Um, so just, just as it is for us, the, the, they run the whole gamut of different, different kinds of people, different temperaments, you know, you can't just tar them all with the, with the one brush as to, uh, you know, whether or not they're good or evil or anything like that. I mean, you, that's, you know, an essentialist viewpoint where you're just, just trying to apply one adjective to an entire race of people um, that would be inappropriate to do with homo sapiens, of course. Um, so why would it be appropriate to do it with a with another race? You just reminded me of, of the book, the 411 edition of The Hunters, which is something that we haven't seen that much lately on David Politis. And back in 2016, I read the book I had prepared for the interview, but we had to cancel for some personal reasons for him. But I need to contact him again and come back to that book because that was a fascinating book. We always talk about, as you said, professionals, athletes, and so on. But this one was very specific about hunters. And when you think about it, let's say that many people, and I've never discussed the topic of Bigfoot here. I, I never have, and I haven't been convinced to do so. But what if these beings that are out there could be, I don't know, the pets of some advanced civilization that go out to get food for them. And I believe that these tall whites are vegetarian. Am I right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Vegetarian. And they say that uh, in their world, they do not understand why is it that humans can interact like we do with say dogs and horses and animals that could actually kill us. And they, I don't know if they admire that quality of, of us that we, we know how to treat these animals so that we are not killed. But they decided long time ago that they don't want anything to do with animals. They don't, they leave them alone and they don't also, they don't eat animals. They don't eat anything alive. Uh, they eat, you know, plants and, and fruits and vegetables. Yeah, that's right. And they only wear clothing that's made from um, plant matter, not, or uh, synthetic matter perhaps, but not, not animal uh, products um, in their clothing as well. So, so you can say like they're plant based. You could even go so far as to say, well, they're vegan, really. Yeah. You know. Um, but um, yeah, they they um, yeah that that kind of can seem like a contradiction to people. I think sometimes where they say, hold on a sec, 
you know, I know that the, the, the tall whites are very concerned about our failing biosphere at the moment. As you can imagine, they are permanently here themselves as well. Um, if we are misusing and abusing and, and uh, resorting to certain kinds of questionable methods for producing um, our power, you know, fossil fuels, etc., so on, or, or clearing large amounts of land, uh, killing off large amounts of species, they're concerned about returning the biosphere to something like it was in the recent past, perhaps pre-industrial era or, era or even earlier. But um, they they have respect for animals and for ecosystems. But like you said, yes, they have. They do not understand how and why we have such an interest in living closely to animals, training animals to perform certain functions. Um, I think they would struggle, and it's a cultural thing, I suppose, they would struggle to try and train an animal to do anything. Um, in fact, they'd more likely just resort to using technology to manipulate its mind. So the idea they could, that you can train animals to perform certain tasks, that we trust them in certain circumstances to be safe, but in other circumstances we trust them to be lethal. We want them to be aggressive and vicious like guard dogs or hunting dogs or um, – and the tall whites are particularly concerned about domesticated dogs and um, frightened of them, nervous around them, do not, do not trust them, um, and uh, are prone to killing them as well. They, they, have, they wear these long prosthetic claws on these military-grade suits, um, and they slash dogs' throats with them. They're trained to do that um, in exactly the right spot. I think Chris Bledsoe's dog accidentally got in the way at one stage. You know, there's that famous incident where Grant Cameron was visiting Chris Bledsoe at his property and they were inside and the front door opened and a dog, one of, and a couple of Bledsoe's dogs came in and Chris Bledsoe said, Oh, what are you doing in here? You know, get out, um, waved them away, closed and locked the door behind them. And then he sat back down with Grant and then lo and behold, the doors opened again and they're back in there. And he did that again. It's happened several times. Then Grant and he went outside, were talking, and one of the dogs, one of Chris's dogs, ran past Grant Cameron and sprayed his jeans with copious amounts of blood. The dog was just spouting blood out of the side of its throat. Um, so they ran after the dog. They they looked at it. They were trying to work out what was wrong with it, and then the bleeding miraculously stopped. Um, in my opinion, the the tall whites, the mudgener were trying to give Chris Bledsoe a hint that they didn't want the dogs in the yard because their children were playing in the yard, so they kept returning the dogs inside. Chris wasn't getting the hint. He kept letting the dogs out. And then um, there seems to have been some kind of accident where one of the children maybe has slit the dog's throat, which um, there's a possibility as well, in, in my opinion, that Grant and Chris were probably switched off then in the sense that the tall whites can turn people off as in switch them off so that their consciousness is interrupted, mm -hmm. um, go into a trance. Um, and I, I could just, <laughs> I could just imagine the, the, the fuss of trying to work out how to quickly heal the dog's throat because, you know, they, they, they're trying to, it would seem that they're trying to cultivate a positive relationship with Chris Bledsoe. Um, and so this is not a good look. Um, and so the dog's throat was miraculously healed. Um, now, but this is an, this, and this raises a little bit of a point as well that is relevant to the healing. Um, 
they have trouble healing themselves, which is to do with their failing genomes, uh, impoverished genomes. Part of the part of it is the very slow, delayed healing process compared to ours. Um, so they so have the, they this, have delayed aging, but they also have delayed um, healing. Healing. Yeah, delayed delayed healing, uh, late aging. Yeah, but um, so. Um, but with their sophisticated technologies, they would appear to have no problems healing us if we are damaged or injured or animals, but they do come across problems when they try to apply those kinds of medical technologies to themselves. Um, and, and, you know, if they've been interbreeding with us here and there for so long, you'd imagine in appearance, they'd be less different to us. That they would have, they'd be mixed. There'd be a mixed race now, which doesn't seem to be the case. Although Charles Hall does mention stockier, more sturdy-looking individuals on occasion that are less ectomorphic, less frail-looking, and or also in some cases there's suggestions perhaps of darker-skinned individuals amongst them, like in the Peter Curry case where there was a woman that he thought maybe looked Asian that was sitting on the bed alongside the tall white. Um, so sometimes there's hints that perhaps there's some um, representatives, uh, you know, progeny of, of, of this, of, of interspecies or of subspecies um, breeding. But um, for the most part, they stay remaining looking like themselves, which strongly suggests that um, they are still having a hand in uh, manipulating the genes of the next generation of a you know, of a of a hybrid or of a mixed race, and only selecting certain favourable traits that they want passed on, like say stronger muscle fibres, uh, better healing, quality. thicker hair. But then, but thicker hair, yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe thicker hair, but um, but not wanting to look like us, being a proud race that would prefer still to remain essentially as much like themselves as possible, you know, because in the end, I mean, you could say, well, if they want to continue their race and they are very much like us, why don't they just allow themselves to die out and have a new uh, generation of homo sapiens that take on their culture and language and history so that they're so culturally they will continue, but they will delete and give up this, this failed genetic past of theirs. But if it's a matter, but if it's a matter of survival, they yeah, might they say, well, we want to preserve our, our culture, we preserve our, our genome, but if it means that we have to mix it in order to survive, so be it. We have to take a one and only break, but just, have, just want to read something quickly here, and then we'll take a break. Um, you know, what I said about the oceans, once again, being 80% on map, unobserved and unexplored, and I remember stories in my childhood Ryan, during the early 70s, uh, the UFO wave, I remember the testimony of fishermen back then. Uh, you know, I was a little kid, but I remember them on TV and newspapers talking about how they frequently saw lights and objects going in and out of the ocean uh, during the day and at, at night without making a splash. And I get this feeling that whenever NASA says they want to explore, or where they want to explore, rather, currently Mars, that they don't want us to explore where they should, which should be our oceans or even going back to the moon, which would have been, you know, to me, it makes more sense going back to the moon if we want to have a manned mission to Mars. So this is why I have such a hard time believing NASA. Whenever they say we're going to go here, why don't we go there? We have so much 
So much to explore here on our planet. But one last thing, since we're talking about how these beings like to procreate with us, this is kind of a funny thing, but I remember many years ago, I was listening to Coast to Coast, and the host at the time was Ian Punnett this night specifically. And he had a, uh, I forgot the name of the, the researcher, but he was an abductee, had a great story. And he said that he was taken into a craft and he was given a blue potion and that he took and then he had, as many people say, he had an interaction, sexual intercourse with a being on the craft. But he says that for days when he came back to, to Earth, he said, and I, I hate people hate me for saying this because it sounds a little bit uh, unorthodox, but he said, I could have sex with an oak tree for weeks. This is what they gave this individual. Uh, so we see stories like this, and it makes you wonder, if these beings are so advanced, why do they have to do it the old-fashioned, intercourse, sexual way, when they can simply take some DNA samples and use their technology to clone us? But we'll take your answer on the other side. How can people buy the new book, Ryan? Uh, yeah, the, the book, um, Children of Orion, Finding the Crypto-Terrestrials, is um, published through Flying Disc Press, Philip Mantle, but it's available on Amazon as a paperback um, hardcover and an ebook. Excellent, folks. Don't go anywhere. We have so much more to discuss. Another hour with Ryan Musgrave Evans. This is Mel Hosslerick, and you're listening to Veritas. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Pure Organic Sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it and click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know.